Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. Appreciate you jumping on and listening to us today. We're going to talk with Jay Mackinich. He is the retired CEO of the Archery Trade Association, among a number of other things. And this is one that we've been looking forward to uh, for quite a while. And joining us in the conversation, as always, will be the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Mike, good to see you. Uh, Jay is going to take us down memory lane on a trip down memory lane on some real cool archery history today. And you and I being kind of archery nerds, this is right up our alley. Yeah, I'm excited about this. I always like to hear or be able to reminisce back to when I first started and got involved in archery. So I'm really excited about it. Well, a little housekeeping before we bring uh, Jay in. Uh, Our sponsor today is Wildlife Research Center, a wonderful family-owned company that uh, is a sponsor supporter of the National Deer Association. And this is timely for me because I just ordered my annual supply of scent killer gold body wash and laundry detergent and dryer sheets. And so uh, for me, Mike, there nothing, nothing beats the body wash the scent killer gold body wash. I mean, I want to use it all year long because the way, the way it makes your skin feel after you use it, I'm not trying to, this isn't a commercial. This is just reality. I love that stuff. And so I I actually look forward to getting to this point in the year where I'll start using that on a daily basis. And so scent killer gold has been uh, my absolute go-to on the body wash front. And then, you know, of course the, the laundry detergents and all the other scent killing products that they have. And, you know, Mike and I, we talk a ton about what's the most critical factor out there in the deer woods. If you want to get close to a big deer and what is that number one factor, Mike? Beating their nose. Beating their nose. And so, uh, again, you will never do, you'll never beat it, but you know, can you, can you kind of cheat their nose? We'll call it. Yeah. It's about gaining those one or 2% edges or whatever it turns out to be. And so, uh, again, we want to thank our friends at Wildlife Research Center for being supporters, not just of the NDA, but many different uh, organizations like ours. So they, they aren't just takers, they're givers as well. So thanks again uh, to the folks at Wildlife Research Center. Uh, also on the housekeeping front, ask NDA anything. We got an interesting, we got, we got a few questions, but this is the one I want to answer because I've been asked this by a number of people. So this comes from Tim in Minnesota. Tim, we will get you a NDA hat. Uh, So if you hear this, please send me your mailing address. Make sure we get that out to you. But the question was simply, is NDA going to have a national convention again? And this is a question that we get a lot. And I can tell you that uh, the, the answer is, the short answer is not anytime soon. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, let's just start with the fact that unfortunately, we're still talking about a pandemic. I sure am glad that we didn't plan a convention for August of 20, uh, 2021, because as uh, we just saw in the news here the other day, the uh, National Rifle Association had to cancel their big event and we'd be in the same boat. So there are those challenges uh, right out of the gate. The other issue is I think often about how do we impact the most members of our organization? What percentage of our members would actually come to an annual convention? And I can tell you, it takes a ton of work to put these things on, a ton of work. And when we're doing that work, we're taking our focus away from what we can do for deer and hunters. And when I think about the small percentage of our membership that can actually make it to an annual convention due to uh, work uh, commitments, uh, other things that, that require their time, traveling, it's a very tiny percentage. And so while they're fun to do, and I've been at several of them, I can tell you that it's going to be, it's going to take a compelling argument to get us to be doing those again. Uh, we are talking about maybe doing some smaller scale regional type events where we may be able to impact more people, but that's just in the discussion phase. So I do appreciate that question because uh, many listeners may be wondering that as well. Uh, so the answer is uh, not anytime soon, although we will continue to evaluate that and make those decisions going forward. Mike, I got to ask you before we go ahead and jump into the interview with Jay, uh, why is it 90 degrees at the end of August? Because if every time I'm trying to get seed in the ground, we hit a drought and a heat wave. So 
that's just pretty much, I, I'm, I'm going to take the blame for that. Everybody. I apologize. Well, you are the doctor. And so I figured the doctor needs to know the answer to this. I, we were blessed a little bit. I got seed in the ground and then literally two or three days later, the hurricane, I guess it was a tropical storm at that point, finally made its way through. And we had a day and a half of pretty much just straight rain. And so I was smiling like the butcher's dog, man. It's like, this is perfect. I'm going to look like the best uh, food plot grower in, in the North. And then it hasn't rained since. So my, everything that, that sprouted is probably all burned up and shriveled up on the ground. Well, let's hope not. But I was, I was smiling for you because I'm like, boy, you really, you really flipped the coin and won that one. Yep. Yeah. So we'll see. I need to, I need to take a trip and see what's happening. So we'll hope for some rain here and hopefully these 90 degree days disappear, but uh, there's an awful lot we want to talk to Jay Mackinich about, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, his, he most recently is retired from the archery trade association. He's one of the founders of the national deer Alliance, which is now, as you know, the national deer association, uh, and, uh, has been, been involved in many, many aspects of the outdoor industry, not just archery. So let's go ahead and bring Jay in and hear from him. It's my pleasure to welcome Mr. Jay Mackinich to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Jay is really one of the most experienced and knowledgeable people you'll find in the outdoors industry. Just a ton of experience, which we're going to get into here today. A real outdoor industry leader throughout his career and even even in his retirement, continuing in that role. Uh, Jay and I often have many long conversations, long email exchanges, and uh, Jay is certainly someone I consider not just a friend, but also a mentor. And so certainly appreciate you being with us here on the show today, Jay. Uh, thanks for having me, Nick. I, uh, I see uh, it looks like a lot of fun from the podcast, although I confess I, I decided not to do the bald head. I was looking at you two guys and thought, okay, I'm going to keep what little hair I have. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the beauty of the coffee and beer show here is we record using zoom and we can all see each other and so yes to be a host of the show you have to indeed be bald so you're you're disqualified immediately jay uh, but we're happy to have you here as a guest and so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself well uh wow uh, almost 70 years i guess of, of trail that i've come down um grew up in a very small southwestern iowa town uh, shout out to red oak I was just back for our 50th reunion with my buds and hunting came up a lot. And I, uh, believe it or not, uh, got to be a big shot because I was a National Deer Association associate. And uh, I think I revved up some members. So uh, anyway, I started there on the river bottoms of southwest Iowa, a little tiny town. Uh, we hunted, fished, trapped. Um, my best friend and I were the first bow hunters in our community, uh, mailed off an order for a bow from in Waseca, Minnesota, and got our bows and got our arrows and taught ourselves to hunt. It was probably pretty laughable uh, by today's standards, but we enjoyed it a ton, became fast friends and actually smitten with deer. And something that really uh, hit me for the whole rest of my life, um, between football and, and pursuing deer, being thinking about deer and being around deer, that was all I did for a lot of the next decades. Um, Along the way, I, I found a, a way to pay for what I did. Uh, when I was 13, I met my wife, Janet, in high school freshman class. Uh, she wouldn't go out with me till I had a car. Um, and there's still a debate about what I showed up with when I was a junior as a car. <laughs> but it cost 50 bucks, and it's all I could afford. Um, parts of it usually fell off. So uh, her mother, after our first date, asked me to park out in the street instead of in the driveway. That was okay, but the next date she asked me to park down the street because didn't want anybody to think that that car was associated with them. So <laughs> anyway, uh, we went out and uh, she became a nurse, which was a, a good way to, as you all know, in this profession, you don't make a ton of money when you're a biologist. So uh, we, uh, we made a go of it. Went to Iowa State um, initially to uh, play football and, and my dreams at the NFL ended pretty quickly uh, with Johnny Majors and a very talented team. Uh, went to two bowl games, but I still got a uh, education in fish and wildlife biology, went to Ohio State and got a graduate degree. 
and then had the good fortune to end up at what is now the Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Southeastern New York and Dutchess County. Uh, enjoyed that a ton. Um, I remember my, my first year or two there, uh, as I encountered all the deer we were working with, and I primarily worked white-tailed deer at that time. Um, I remember looking at these deer in this wooded, really difficult, poor soil area in Southeast New York thinking, what are these? Um, I saw deer that were a year old and only had spikes. And of course, in our corn-fed Iowa place, we didn't have a lot of deer, but boy, the ones we had were, were huge. Uh, the first doe I shot with my recurve when I was 16 years old, my, my landmark uh, achievement, I remember adjusting and thinking, wow, the deer in this part of the world are, are totally different. And yet when the deer season came, frankly, uh, several states shut down. Um, the tradition there was far more significant than it was where I grew up. And uh, I thought, gosh, I, uh, I like this. Um, so we stayed at the Institute for I guess 12 years, uh, met a lot of great friends, was pretty active in the Northeast uh, Deer Study Group at that time. Uh, it's called a technical committee. Met a lot of the uh, stalwarts in our profession, like Bill Severinghouse, who became quite a name and a number of other names that were, some people will know that have been in research for many years, uh, but thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, took that background in that work and went to Minnesota Department of Natural Resources in uh, 1989 and then worked there for 10 years. Um, really enjoyed that work. I focused primarily on urban deer, brought urban deer programs to all the Twin Cities areas, a lot of advanced bow hunting programs. Um, we had started back in 1978, the first shooting test for hunters. Hunters now in all over the country may wonder why they take that test and what we did was started it to try to demonstrate to the unknowing suburban residents that needed deer taken that there really is bow hunters out there who could be extremely accurate and very effective at taking deer. And of course, the most important thing about archery in that environment is it's quiet, silent. So uh, anyway, took that to Minnesota, really expanded that program significantly, worked on a lot of deer damage issues, agriculture and met up and got involved in my first animal rights, anti-hunting activities. And that led me to really realizing the advocacy that needed to happen. And so I focused on that for a bit and uh, uh, ended up uh, taking a job after our kids left home. Son and daughter are now in their mid forties, but at that time had graduated uh, high school and had gone on to college. And so we uh, looked around and the Congressional Sports Foundation offered me a chance. And so we, uh, Closed up shop and went to a completely different career path, uh, running the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation on Capitol Hill. Enjoyed that immensely. Met a lot of great members of the House and Senate who were avid sportsmen and could find some, some safe haven uh, in, in those issues, as opposed to the, at that time, we thought division over issues, but that was uh, child's play compared to the division we have today. But at the end of the day, uh, really about two years later, the Archery Trade Association came calling and uh, having always avid, always been an avid bow hunter and archer, I, I thought, wow, this is, uh, I almost felt like I was coming home. And so I had the chance to do that. And I did that until about three years ago when I stepped down and began to work part-time, uh, I guess for myself, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I do uh, other than hope to be the best grandfather I can possibly be and uh, hunt, fish, trap, and be in the football stands to watch them play and to also get in um, some time uh, hoping that organizations like NDA can, can thrive and be better and be all that uh, everyone wants it to be. So that kind of a big nutshell, but that's the trail that led me to where I'm sitting today in my uh, in my office. It's really an incredible journey. And I, I hear you talk about retirement and it's funny because I feel like we still communicate as much as we did back when you were the original chairman of the national deer Alliance. So we're still certainly after you and trying to get your experience and expertise. And for the conversation today, I think the listeners will really be interested in hearing uh, when you when you left the Congressional Sportsman Foundation and you took this job at ATA, now ATA in those days, I'm going to take a wild guess here and say uh, the organization, but really archery itself didn't look anything like it does today. 
So take us back to whenever you first sat in the seat there as the as the CEO of the ATA. What did it look like then? Well, it's 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 really interesting because um, uh, I, I think the way to start, I would is if you if you back off in perspective and look at the trade association landscape, a lot of people really aren't familiar with trade associations. I mean, they know what we call NGOs and non-governmental organizations, the C3s and C4s, the way the IRS looks at them. And those are the cast of characters everyone knows. Ducks Unlimited um, is one of the oldest. Pope and Young Club, Boone and Crockett, Rocky Mountain Elks sit out there and kind of play in that mix, but they, they, they really come from a different world. Uh, they're a business trade association where the members are companies, not individuals. And the companies sit at, have a seat at the table and they, as competitors, uh, fierce competitors many times outside the room, come together to try to do what's best for their industry. And I, I, I start there because if you look at the world of shooting, hunting, and, and, and the industry side of it, the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the firearms industry was the, the starting point. And archery used to be part of that. And as you all know, or many people know that are at least 60-ish, uh, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, that was okay. Because uh, archery and bow hunting was primarily a target archery sport with a very few bow hunters that went out and shot recurves. And uh, kind of like my experience, a few of us did. Actually, when we left home, my buddy and I that I told you about that hunted with recurves, we were still the only guys that bow hunted in our entire community. Um, and so, uh, uh, compound bows came out in the seventies and growth just skyrocketed. Uh, two things happened that really fueled the bow hunting world. And that is the compound bow and white tailed deer exploding across the continent. So by the eighties, the numbers were skyrocketing. And so by the time they got to about the late eighties and early nineties, the archery industry had grown dramatically. And those manufacturers were kind of clamoring with the firearms leaders to say, hey, we, we need a bigger uh, piece of the section of this, this trade association to focus on archery and bow hunting. They wanted a separate piece of the SHOT Show, which at that time is the same show it is today, but it did include all the archery and bow hunting interests. So the origins of the archery trade association started there when the group decided for the betterment of their own industry to break off, form their own trade association and have a go at their own show. Uh, that went on for about 10 years. And like a lot of young organizations, they had many growing pains and many ways of just trying to kind of navigate the waters. And so um, they, they and, and there was a few things that happened that were, were simply not working in their favor. One, the show that was launched, they didn't own it. Uh, another individual owned it and he gave a cut to the uh, trade association, which is the group of all of whose members made up the show. That didn't last for a really long time because the show was growing, industry was growing. And so finally the trade association wanted it back. Ended up in kind of an ugly litigation that was a kind of a dark chapter of trying to get things sorted out. And so um, the time that I walked through the door or was asked to come through the door, I already had five years experience working with the group just in helping them and helping them do strategic planning and doing a lot of things that were trying to set the course for where they needed to go as a young growing trade association and a really growing industry. So uh, long story short, when I walked through the door, uh, we really literally had to start over from where we were, but this time start over with owning the show and building a staff and building an organization that could really create this business platform that at that time was the show that was really thriving. And that was the probably the heyday of, of all these shows that we know is about the mid nineties to about 2000. Well, you could probably even say 2019, uh, but really in about the mid 2014, 15 period, the Amazon impact, as I call it, was starting to happen. And, you know, online purchasing and the, the, the people scratching their head and saying, maybe we don't need a new show uh, had started to happen. So for that period, we, we entered that game and really had a really successful run up to 2005 with a relatively small staff um, and, and built the industry side of the trade association, as I like to call it, having a real thriving show, member benefits, working on federal excise tax, which is Pittman-Robertson money that's created by archery, working on import-export issues, because at the same time, archery, like many other industries, was starting to pull up product out of China and Korea and Pakistan and a lot of other places. Uh, 
So we built what I would say was the, the actual trade association with all the business benefits and services that, that, that was needed at that time. It's interesting. I think a lot of people, well, I, I know a lot of people when they buy archery equipment, they don't know any of that long road that you took us down. You know, they just see a package on a shelf and there's so much more that goes into it. And you've worked on that for a long time. I'm curious, you mentioned shooting your first deer with a bow back in 1978. Can you take us through what your gear list looked like that day? Huh. Well, um, and actually, I, I wish it was 78. It was actually 1966. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you said you were 16. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it was not, well, actually 1968. I guess I, I got it wrong. But 68 is when I was 16. And uh, <laughs> it's really funny because um, hunting at that time, you know, it's funny. You look at it now and I, I sit in these ladder stands. <laughs> I almost laugh and I think, wow. You know, uh, and as I feel one of my ankles that I think forever will be fused. Um, and that came from bow hunting. And I'll tell you why, because when we started hunting, uh, not only were there no tree stands, the ones that were out there were dangerous. I, I can tell you many times we looked at that. Uh, I think it would cost like 40 bucks for a tree stand. And you have to remember in that day and age, you could buy a car for, well, I bought my car was 50 bucks. <laughs> So uh, that tree stand wasn't happening, um, especially when, you know, you're only making less than a dollar an hour. So we looked at it and thought, well, that's a bed frame. So we welded and cut up a bed frame and made it. Well, we found out immediately what it's like to go up a tree and then immediately come down and then rub your thighs raw and your belly raw because you can't hang on. So what most people did and what I did is we carried with it what's called a crotch board. We had a couple of them, about a foot long and had a V cut in each end. And you would look around when you found a deer trail and found a spot that looked good, and you would shinny up there. Um, and if you liked it, you'd put a little uh, uh, pull rope up there. It had knots in it. So you could put your hands hand over hand uh, using the knots to go up the tree. And you put your crotch board, wedged it down in a crotch, and stood up and down on it and, and, and you know, jammed it in so you could stand there. And so you might be standing on something that's like six inches wide if you were lucky, if it was a bigger tree. If it wasn't, uh, you kind of went back and forth to one foot and the other foot. And I sometimes, as tired as I get today, I think, how the hell did we ever stand there for three or four hours? Uh, and actually, late in the season, I would go out, have my dad drop me off Friday nights and pick me up Sunday night. And I'd spend the whole day out there and only get down, you know, uh, once in a great while uh, to just get the kinks out. So, uh, so my list that day was my crotch board, uh, my bow my Port Orford cedar arrows that I cooked for practice. And then I had these um, Cadillac arrows at the time is what we used to call them. Uh, we ordered them from Easton and it was a, an Easton aluminum arrow. God, I wish I'd known you were going to ask this. I've got it sitting right over here. Um, <laughs> I kept the arrow that I shot the deer with and it ended up being a uh, arrow that had a, the, the head was fused to it at that time, had a really long saber uh, broadhead on it. And uh, you only you only shot uh, you shot one for practice and you only shot one at a deer and took one extra one because I can only afford three of them. Um, so that was what I had along with me that day. I had a quickie quiver which clamped onto my bow. It was rubber and it had a kind of a wire thing that clamped around it. And I shot off an HD flipper rest, uh, which you'd have to Google it to probably look and see what that looked like because you didn't shoot off the shelf. Uh, the real uh, guys who weren't really into archery shot off the shelf, but us guys that got an HD flipper rest because uh, we saw it in the magazines and Jim Doherty hunted with it, who was, turns out, is, you know, in his young, in his 20s, and he was kind of one of my heroes. So I hunted with that. No camo, didn't have camo, but I had already discovered about scent that if I wore uh, overalls that I wore, I worked on farms, especially when I worked choring, uh, including hog houses. I worked pretty good. Deer walked right up to me. Um, so, uh, so you can imagine what I smelled like. Um, and so, uh, uh, had that, um, I always wore a ball cap turned around because I of course couldn't draw the bow back all the way if I kept my cap front wise. And, uh, I think that was about it. And, uh, and that was what I towed into the woods, no water bottle, no day pack, no snacks. Um, 
just didn't, you know, have the room or the ability to do all that. No one had ever really thought of hooks on trees or anything to hang things on. We were more concerned with just being able to stay upright and keep your legs from falling asleep to stand there long enough to be able to take a shot. So that was circa 1968, um, what we, uh, what, what things looked like when we went deer hunting. Mike, I'm going to bring you in here uh, because sure. you and I are just, we're just old enough to have some experience with a few of the things that Jay's talked about here, the flipper rest being one of them, tree stands that we shouldn't have been standing in. Um, I'm just, as, as I'm listening to Jay talk, my face actually hurts from smiling and kind of laughing the whole time. Uh, I, I imagine you're having some of those same reactions. Well, I am. The, the first thing that went through my mind, Jay, was did that quickie quiver have a hood on it? Oh, of course not. There was no hood in those days. They came out a few years later. But the problem is it clamped on your arrow. So you had to give up an arrow. And there was only room for about three arrows in there. So you had some tough choices to make. Yeah. So like, that's what I wanted to explain to everybody. The reason that Nick and I are smiling is because if you're, if you're not familiar with some of the equipment that was available back then, it, it had, it was all about just being able to go and being convenient. But in regards to the safety factors, it just, it just didn't have a lot of them. So basically when we ask about a hood, everyone knows what a hood is for their quiver. Jay's walking around the woods, climbing in a tree, standing on a six inch wide piece of two by four with notches cut in the end with the broadheads exposed. So wrap your mind around that one for a second. Well, Mike, you bring up a good point because, you know, I, I, I think uh, you guys grew up kind of like my buddy and I did. When I look at you two guys, I think I've told Nick before about my best friend. We were together 24-7. We trapped, hunted, played football together. I was a quarterback. He was a running back. Uh, halfback, the guy I would throw to or give the ball to and, and always knew what I was going to do. Same thing hunting, uh, always companion hunting. We never hunted the spot where we thought about one standards, always at least two, if not four, but everything was multiples of two. So when I think of him, though, and I think of you guys and I think of your comment, it's not only what was available, it's what we could afford because we yeah. looked at a lot of stuff thinking, I wonder if we can make that um, because, you know, income those days in rural parts of Iowa and I'm sure Pennsylvania wasn't uh, wasn't quite what it is today um, and and getting something was a process uh, trying to trying to get something and get it to your house and get it in your hands it wasn't it wasn't like an overnight delivery I laugh at that now when people get impatient my daughter hates it if something comes and takes two days well and and in all seriousness, in this day and age as well, as we see products, you know, for example, hunting coats that are $400 and change a pair of, I was looking at a pair of boots for this season, $430. I mean, those purchases don't just, you know, roll off the tip of my fingers. I mean, I, you have to think long and hard about it. Now the, the paradigm shift has gone from $40 to $400. That might be an extreme, but those those problems still live with us today because there's been times that, uh, cause I don't roll in money. There's been times that I had to wait an entire season or more, save up money to get what I needed to get. I mean, I'm waiting on a bow right now and I actually, I squirrel the money away. And when I have enough, I place the order. And unfortunately the order was placed in February and I still don't have that bow in my hands yet, but it's, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny, too. I, one of the things I track in this is the trade association, and I think I showed some of this to Nick when we first started working together. We always, I always kept track of how many bow companies there were, you know, the total number of companies, bow companies, uh, accessories companies, especially accessories that go on a bow. And it was interesting to me that over all the years I was at the trade association, 17 plus years, that number kept growing. And in the year I left, there was over 150 active accessory uh, companies. So the choice you have, too, is, is amazing. It's a, it's a scientific research project as you go into looking and trying to decide you know, what you're going to get and, and how you're going to get it. But you know, to your point, I think that's one of the things, too, having gotten involved with my three grandsons, uh, getting them in over the, all over many years. Now the oldest is 16. Um, cost of equipment is still something we've got to work on in this industry. It's, 
it's sort of like some sports. Um, I always remember some parents saying, I'd love to get my kid into ice hockey, but it's, you know, hundreds of dollars for skates and equipment and all the stuff you got to get into it. Um, and I think, I think our sport is, is in danger of that a bit. Um, and we've got to, we've got to be careful to not have the ultra cheap equipment that makes it so they don't have fun and they don't have success, but we can't, can't be expecting parents first time out of the gate to, you know, roll for, you know, three, $400. Staying on this track, obviously a ton has changed, uh, during your career and, and your time around archery, Jay. Uh, I want to, I'm interested to hear from you a couple things. What still kind of remains the same about the sport, despite all the equipment changes, but also of all the changes, what is the, uh, putting prices of equipment aside, what is the one thing that you think has been uh, the most uh, earth moving, if you will? Those are really good questions. Um, let me start with what's, what's, you know, what's stayed the same and been part of it. I, I think the greatest thing to me about what stays the same is what you, and I'm going to talk about bow hunting. I mean, I, 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 I target shoot, but I shoot to hunt. I, and I do not at all disrespect all of the great archers I've seen and people who love to shoot year round and really like archery as a sport in addition to bow hunting. But for me, the attraction was bow hunting. And, you know, the feeling I had when I had deer come close to me when I was in a bow stand, it's like none other. I remember almost every single deer that came close to me, which was not hard because I didn't see many deer. There was sometimes a whole weekend go by, I wouldn't see a deer. Deer densities in Southwest Iowa in the 60s were tough. Uh, and, and what a heartbreaker when you had a deer. I remember watching one come down. I was on a river bottom um, hunting. And of course, today's world, people were shot hunting alone. No one was in miles. Uh, of course, there weren't many deer. But I was on the river edge. And there was a narrowing point where I had a tree and there was like 10 feet of cover there. And the deer had to get from one kind of woodlot to another and always had to walk right down that edge. So here comes a deer. And I always thought, okay, this is the best spot in the world. Comes, wanders out in where the, the if you know corn country, you know, they pick the corn. Sometimes when they turn, they leave a pile of corn. Well, the pile of corn was just not quite 50 yards from me. So he wandered out to that pile of corn, ate to his heart's content, wandered back into the trail. So literally made about a 50-yard uh, semicircle right around me. And that was the only deer I saw in two and a half days. <laughs> so anyway, um, but, you know, the thrill I had, even taking shots that I missed, and unfortunately, in a couple, two cases, wounded a deer. But when I took that shot and got that deer, the thrill of having deer close, of seeing a scrape and seeing bucks, and I remember vividly buck fights that I saw in the river bottoms, all that kind of thing. I, I got a chance to, to flash forward, and not that many years ago, my son, who's now in his mid-40s, I had a chance to, to be texting with him and almost which puts you almost in the tree stand when he shot his first really big buck. And, and he was really, uh, frankly, it was just, you know, five years ago or so because he played football his whole career, went into law, had, has a great law practice. And, and then as the boys got older, he had to kind of accelerate and we got into bow hunting pretty uh, with, with a lot of passion because he had to beat his grandsons. So he got a really nice deer, but, but the, the, I could hear and feel in his text what he was feeling. And I could imagine the same thing. And then he called from where he, you know, found the deer and, you know, the excitement in his voice. And, and then when I got to him and we saw the deer and you're, you're looking at it, that's, that's what stayed the same and doing it with a bow. There's just something unique about that challenge. It's sort of like, maybe it's not a big mountaintop, but it's sort of like you scaled something and you're standing there just for a minute, feeling that feeling of being on top of the world. That's how I, best way I can describe it. And then my grandson, you know, to watch my, my uh, 14 year old Frankie um, take shots. I mean, that kid started when he was 10 and went through all the things, but to see them, you know, on a scrape, 
And, and frankly, I'll go back when they were younger. I used to take them up in the tree stands with me when they were five, six, seven years old. I got pictures of them sleeping for hours up there. But I've also got a great picture. When Frankie was learning, each time we kind of had a theme. And so one year we'd use deer calling. He was fooling around with a call and got young bucks to come in. And I got a great picture, this trophy picture, at about age, gosh, eight, nine, maybe. He kept calling and this young buck kept coming around. So I have a picture of him in the foreground with his call and the buck standing on the ground in the background. And often he's a little bit, probably 40 yards out. But um, he's so proud of that picture. And then Jack, the younger one, he's now 11. Um, we, we, we created mock scrapes and used scent for a while and getting scent. And they, they were just learning all about deer. And that excitement, even though neither one of them, uh, Frankie shot his first year uh, last year, a doe with his bow. And Jack just started last year. He's at 10, now he'll be 11. So he's anxious to catch up. But what stayed the same is that heart pounding, call it buck fever, call it whatever you want, but that overwhelming emotional feeling of achievement. And I, I always wonder when some of the guys who hunt in all these states and go to all these places, do they still have that? Because that's, that, that's what connects us all. And that's the passion that brought me to the job that I had for 17 years. And yet it's similar to the passion that I have when I sit with the boys and, and get to see the world through their eyes and what they're feeling. And, um, I, I always remember, I think it was Jack sitting there and took his first shot and missed his first deer at gosh, really close yard, like 15 yards. And you all know what, what he was feeling when he said to me, grandpa, I think the deer heard my heartbeat. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's that, that, that's what we all feel. So, so that's, that stayed the same. The changes, Nick, um, gosh, you know, it's interesting to me, but I, I think some of the changes, two of the biggest ones, I think, and I'm just going to make, make them both categorical rather than specific. There's been a lot of technological changes that have really dramatically made it easier for people to get in the woods and to enjoy hunting. And I, for one, like almost all of them. And, and the reason is being able to shoot a compound bow longer and more effectively and more accurately, that's, that, that's an important thing. It reduces wounding rates, increases success, and I don't think it markedly increases success rates, but you can argue that point. But, you know, compound bow let off um, better arrows, better broadheads, more knowledge, more shared information. And frankly, I think trail cameras and all that sort of thing have made people feel like in a busy life, in a busy world, they can get enough information to, you know, to enjoy managing property. And you, you guys do it. It's just talking, just talking yesterday when I was supposed to be inside shopping with my son and we're, we're talking about some property and trail cameras and the excitement of getting the piece and getting a hold of it and managing it and that kind of thing. Um, so all those <clears throat> technological tools that have really advanced our ability to hunt successfully and enjoy it, to, to manage and for deer, to enjoy deer in many ways, huge trail cameras, all that kind of thing. The other categorical change that I think is the one that kind of worries me a little bit is the, we went through the years of huge deer abundance, uh, frankly, at the point where guys had, God, I don't know how many tags. You know, when I, in the, I remember in the 70s, I went to New York, they had six-man doe tags. I always wondered, how do you do that? Uh, you, you almost have to drive because uh, there weren't cell phones then either. So I always worried about deer being left in the woods and, <clears throat> you know, those kinds of things. Well, then you flash forward to the mid-2000s. Who didn't go to the woods with more tags than they could possibly have? And if you hunted out of state like we hunted in Wisconsin, you got a buck tag, but you got they practically filled the envelope with doe tags in hopes that you'd shoot something. Uh, you know, and you had, uh, you know, doe first, uh, you know, earn a buck kind of programs and all that kind of thing. And, and, and then we began to have, you know, enough trail cameras, enough other things going on. So where I'm going with this is one of the other biggest changes is the, what I call really informed deer hunter. But sometimes that information, I'm not sure is all sometimes as accurate as you'd like it to be. And the devaluing of deer management as a profession and, and the deer management biologists and the people trying to manage deer across a broader landscape. And we've never seen it have an impact any greater than when CWD hit. And I think, unfortunately, it's a harbinger of what we're seeing with COVID. 
guys not believing, guys not thinking that we need to do anything different. And I, it frustrates me a bit because what it really kind of suggests is, is that a guy that maybe owns 40 acres or let's be generous, 400 acres, which is a postage stamp in the state the size of Pennsylvania or the size of Minnesota where we hunted, he owns a postage stamp, but but pontificates like there's absolutes in this world about deer. And if you know, I used to always say there's 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 only one thing that's always true about deer, and that is you always never know anything, and they always do something unexpected, and there's never anything that's 100%. And so when you talk in absolutes about management strategies and you talk in absolutes about CWD and how we're going to work together to manage the resource, um, and all those opinions feel like they're fully informed and informed completely, uh, we have those head-on collisions that have occurred in many places in the country, and, and that's some of the frustration, I think, that I hope doesn't lead to, to the breakdown of some of the, you know, the greatest thing that ever was bow hunting for deer, but, uh, but we'll see. So those, those, I, those are a little complicated, but that's kind of my, my two biggest changes, I think, that have impacted the world as I see it over my years. So Jay, I'm going to jump in here and ask you a question, and this is just a strictly an opinion question. So from the time you started bow hunting back in the late 60s, can you list for me and the listener the top, you know, three people you really think made a positive impact in the archery world or in the archery industry? Who would they be and why? Three. Um, well, I'd, I'd have to lead with, and I'm not going to have a single person, but the, the Easton family. Um, Jim Easton is the person that I came to know when I took the job. Um, and his son, Greg, as, was working uh, with the company when I uh, came on board. And over the years, Greg took over the company. Uh, Easton owns the Hoyt Company, the Easton Company, and McKinsey Targets. And, uh, and they're the family that had interest in all the other sporting uh, uh, fields. When all of us bought those softball and baseball bats, we were, we were part of the Eastern Enterprise. But um, they, they have been huge benefactors of the sport of archery, but also bow hunting for uh, as long as the sport's been around. And I don't mean in innovation or in image or in, you know, becoming celebrated celebrities. I mean, in the fundamental ways of finance and business. And they may have been tough, and they were tough competitors, many people unhappy and competing with them. But I always will defend them in the sense that they put uh, their money where the mouth is. They have put more money into supporting the industry and the activities than you can ever imagine. And if you think about it, over the years that I was there, I always remember that when we sat around the table in the trade association, Easton was one company and had one boat. And all, lots of other companies, incredibly small companies, had the same boat. And in my view, I never, ever watched them uh, use their money or their leverage or anything to attempt to gain advantage. And you'd, so, I, so Mike, my answer is sort of convoluted and it may be confusing to people, but it's because the process by which industry groups or any group comes to decisions is I think often more important because good decisions come when more heads are in the room and everybody feels in, like they're empowered and that they matter. And when you can have a board of 15 or 20 people leaning forward, all invested, all ready to go, because the, the, the small company that like Matthews was small when I got on board, um, there's a lot of other accessory companies today that are hugely successful and were small. And when they all feel empowered, and intellectually invested, I have confidence good decisions are always going to come. And a lot of the good decisions that happened on my watch were ones that came from that group of people. And, but it also matters when people have unbelievable leverage. I mean, at any point in time, Easton could have simply owned the trade association. They had that kind of incredible wealth. But they didn't do it and never did. And they took all the money from the sale of all those other companies when they decided to focus strictly on archery and bow hunting and put it into two foundations that today have given out millions and millions of dollars of grants solely for archery programs 
and for archery shooting facilities and that kind of thing. So that that family, I think, has to has to be looked at as, as one of the ones that have really done uh, significant uh, things for uh, for archery and bow hunting. In, in the bow hunting world, um, it's really a cluttered landscape in a sense because it's kind of always been hard for me to determine who really you know had an impact on bow hunters and why did they get into the sport or that kind of thing. Um, obviously, people talk about Fred Bear. That's before my time, so I'm going to set him aside. And I didn't know. I certainly saw the outcome of what he had done. But by the time I came on board, the old bear archery was was literally gone and and was being uh, pulled apart in different in different places and different pieces. Um, I, I think that um, a, as I look at you know the, the the kinds of companies that were out there, there's another one that's right in Pennsylvania, and I think people will probably be very surprised at this. And I'm, I'm going to largely probably look at companies, but I think some of the distributors that were out there, and one of them was Kinsey's, which sits right there in, uh, uh, in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, but came on early and not only created an avenue to get all the manufacturer's products to come through one facility, but could turn around and make sure that all those products got out to every retailer that was out there. And frankly, even clubs, you know, functioned almost like a retail shop over many years. And Jim Kinsey was the, the founder and now his or not the founder, but he was one of the originators. And, uh, and his second and third generation kids are there running it now. Rick is there now and, uh, and his sister, Sherry uh, Gorman. They run a great company. Um, and they might be surprised to hear that I'm saying this because I wasn't particularly close to the company. Uh, they were on our board later. And, uh, but, but they're the kind of organization that extended the opportunity for many retailers to offer guys like you in, in the most rural areas the kind of products and, and things that you need to go bow hunting. Because frankly, bow hunting, if you can't get the product, it is not as much fun. Um, you really like to have the kind of equipment that, that you, you can take pride in and that you, you can feel like you're going to be successful with. And, and you guys both know up until just recently, if that, if that wasn't available in some physically uh, accessible location, you weren't going to be able to get it. Because a lot of bow hunting equipment's not the kind of stuff you look at in a catalog and buy. You like to have it in your hand or look at it or see it or touch it or feel it or kind of get, a, get an idea of what it is. The third, the third uh, person influencing bow hunting, that's a hard one. Um, that's a really hard one. I think that um, there's been a lot of celebrity bow hunters come and go. Um, I, haven't, I, I don't know that I know one who's sustained themselves over time. Um, and have put as much back into the sport and growing the sport as, as, as maybe uh, others. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say uh, uh, there, there's a, a slew of characters that have all you know, chipped in, but uh, I don't know that I can, I can think of somebody who has really uh, done yeoman's service in the sense of growing the sport, sustaining the sport, seeing it, uh, reach the masses and and become something that can be can be really successful. So I'm sorry, I can only come up with two. Well, that's okay. Two is good. And what I think that that last statement kind of wraps up is there's there's room for improvement. So so if there's listeners out there, I mean there's there's room for improvement. If you're an influencer or a celebrity, might want to step up. Mike, I, I, I tell you, I love that you said that, and I'm glad you kind of flipped that switch for me because I have been critical. Um, I gave a keynote address at a, at a symposium right after I retired, and, and I actually picked on our, our, our group, Bohus. I, I And I, Nick and I, it's funny, we are just talking about the other day, Nick used the word grumpy. There's all too often, as bow hunters, we build a certain competitiveness into this activity and that's okay when it's, you know, I'm looking at two buddies, you know, you have that and, and that goes on, but it's not okay when it, when it crosses generations or it, or it begins to involve others. I remember a day, for example, uh, I went over to a shooting range here when I first started ATA and I had finally had a chance to get out. I was going to go on a Wisconsin whitetail hunt with some congressmen. And, you know, the great thing about this business is you can do what I call work hunts, but it's funny how when you're on your stand, 
now it's not work anymore. Now it's, you at least get a few minutes when you're not having to host somebody or do something. So it's back to bow hunting. But um, I had just gotten a bow that one of the companies had given me and I'd had one of the retailers who I really like set it up just a top notch tech bow technician and everything like that. So I knew when I went to shoot, the only thing wrong with the bow is going to be this guy you're looking at. Um, uh, like, like many of the bows today. So I'm standing there shooting and I shot and I was really pleased with my first round. So I went down to tree marrows and I walked back and there was an older gentleman sitting on what they called the shed porch watching me shoot. And as I was just getting ready to shoot my next round, he leaned back in his chair. He said, Hey buddy. Said, yeah. Said, uh, you want to give me a couple minutes? I can fix that bow and get you shooting right. And, uh, I thought to myself, you can see all that from over there. Are you kidding me? And do you even understand, you know, my shooting style or the bow or anything? And that's one story I'll tell you. So first of all, I'm offended. So what does it make me want to do when I go out shooting? Not shoot around people like that or other people. And you don't know when there's going to be another one. And I'll tell you another story that relates to the same problem. One of my grandsons, and I couldn't wait with my grandsons to get him into archery and got him, you know, things like that. And so we started with the oldest one with a recurve bow. It's all we could find, you know, that's uh, 16 years ago. Today, there's really great little compounds and stuff. And um, I, I can tell you the Bowtech Atomic Bow or Diamond Atomic is, I'm going to be freely giving them. a. I got grandsons that have shot that little bow and loved it since they were about five. But my grandson's shooting a recurve bow at a range. And actually has an older, couple of older guys there. And they come over and they tossle his hair and, oh, really glad to see you shooting. And he looks at the recurve bow and he says to my grandson, you should tell your grandpa to get you a real bow. Oh. And I, when, when, well, there's a guy somewhere in Southern Minnesota, I'm still looking for. And there's very few things that ever make me mad, but thankfully, we overcame that um, and we talked about it, but, you know, forever in a day, that recurve bow didn't get picked up very often again. And I'm just thrilled that I'm who I am and had the passion and his dad had the passion that we kept him in it. Because how many kids, if they went back home and went to a parent and who didn't know a thing about our sport and said, the guy the thinks that this isn't a real bow, that thing that had got hung up and he'd have picked up a hockey sticker, which is fine in other sport, but he, he wouldn't have come back. And so my, my, my story, Mike, is that I think sometimes we're our own worst enemy. We judge each other mercilessly, um, with, without mercy. Um, and, and we're, we're judgmental about so many things. We should just be thrilled that there's somebody else out in the woods enjoying what we do. That's a great point. Jay, I want to steer you as we steer for home here, um, I want to close with this. You could have very easily just gone to the ATA and focused solely on archery and not really cared about anything else that was going on uh, around the sport or not even sometimes not even directly related to the sport. But you thought it was very important to be involved in advocacy uh, on, on hunting issues, conservation issues. Uh, you really understood the big picture and why it mattered. And, and frankly, even toward the end of your career at ATA, whenever you were one of the folks that helped created the National Deer Alliance, now the National Deer Association, as we sit here, um, Mike forwarded me a couple of weeks ago, a, a segment from a podcast he was listening to where actually the NDA came up and the host said something to the effect of, um, we lost our way because nobody wants to hear or talk about politics or policy. And I just, uh, I, aside from shaking my head and saying, all right, this guy doesn't get it. Uh, <laughs> you do get it. And so why do you continue? Why did you involve yourself in that? Why do you continue doing it? And what would you say to somebody who has that short-sighted view of the world that, oh, we should only just focus on you know, going out and doing the management and in the hunting part, because that's all anyone cares about. That's a, that's a really good question. And it's actually one that I thought about, you know, practically over 20 years ago 
when I made a career change. I was sitting there as a really happy deer research biologist doing things I always loved to do, working with deer all over the state, working with hunting groups and clubs and organizations, and really putting programs together that were really effective. But when the animal rights movement and a lot of other policy shifts started happening, I, it, it dawned on me one day when I'm up there in extremely rural northwestern Minnesota where, you know, it's 60 miles between towns and it's godforsaken country. And I say that with all due respect and love for my friends up there. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, a small room somewhere in Twin Cities uh, or in, in Washington, D.C., there could probably be three or four people getting together and have a 20 minute meeting and probably do away with a lot of things that I care about, or they could make decisions that would forever change what I'm out there doing. And they wouldn't care a twit to stop and call me on what was in my bag phone, um, in my car and ask me, do you think this will work? Um, or they'd have some big bill coming down the pike and have a chance to make a few little tweaks and changes like they often do in the excise tax that might apply to uh, archery equipment. And so they tweak it. And maybe that means that two young guys growing up in Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm gonna guess the eighties, um, couldn't afford equipment or would have had to see something like a 50 cent tax on every single arrow shaft that's out there. So policy matters, it really matters. And everybody is, I mean, you don't have to look, you don't have to look for 30 seconds on the internet to find every dire, horrible thing that people can ever say about politicians and government and everything else. But here's the thing, they still get to make the decisions and the decisions that come out of that process are gonna impact our sport. They impact bow hunting, they impact everything. And if you don't believe me, look at the difference between states. Why, why do most bow hunters don't even know that California exists? It's because the opportunity there is difficult and limited and expensive. Um, and so it's, 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 a, it's a big picture issue that still goes on day after day in small rooms where those few people get together and they make decisions that impact what we do. So what do we do about it? Well, years ago, I decided that at least with the way my personality works and the skills I had, that we're all a team. And so why didn't I go to Washington and do what I could do best? And when I came out of the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation with all those relationships and, and things like that, why couldn't I leverage what I could do to try to improve our sport, just like, just like guys all over the country that can, are good with a tractor and mechanical things where I'm in danger of hurting myself. Um, they manage deer and they create great deer populations. So I look at us all as, as a team. And I don't I feel like I've failed and my generation has failed at making everyone feel like they're on the same team. But if we could figure out that we're on the same team and we have several people like you, Nick, and others who can, who can impact policy, that end has to be just as strong as the end on the ground. It has to be, in fact, sometimes stronger. And it doesn't have to be defensive. It doesn't have to be angry or frustrated. You know, too many bow hunters go into the policy room. I always used to say they go in there with a hammer. And I used to tell them, after you hit somebody with a hammer, they tend not to listen to you very much. They don't really care what you're saying anymore. So if you go in and you understand and listen and try to, try to use your voice and your mind to steer the conversation to the end point that you want, you're probably going to get a lot closer to that. Um, and, and, and the final thing I'll say on that whole policy issue is while no one likes government and everyone hates politicians, it's still the system we have. It's the game. That, it, it's the game. And the game's going on whether you like it or not. So you either got to get in the game or if all of us as bow hunters ever retreat to the stands, we're spectators. And we'll just have to simply take our seat and watch and see what happens. We can yell loud. We can throw things. We can be mad. But at the end of the day, if we're not in, that, in the arena making decisions, um, we're, we're going to be in trouble. So there has got to be and that was, in my mind, what I saw when, when I agreed to step in and help the first steering committee, I was looking at it today in 2013-14, uh, work towards the Deer Alliance, uh, which is now the Deer Association. I could not be prouder and, and more thrilled with the work you've done, Nick, and the team 
that you've put together at QDMA and the willingness of all the board members to merge because this policy stuff matters. At the end of the day, it could be the most important thing we do. We never turn another, another uh, plow, uh, we never turn another acre of soil, but if we affect good policy for managing deer and managing bow hunting, we, we, we will always have, you know, we'll always have old guys like me, guys like my son and guys like my grandsons out there in the woods feeling, having the deer hear their heart. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what we've got to, we've got to be joined by that. Um, but, but make sure we cover all the bases, including the policy base. And by the way, let me add one quick caveat. I know you're running out of time, but, you know, there's a lot of policy guys who love what we love to do and they're good people. And you just have to find them. There's more than you think, a lot more than you think. And there's a lot of guys who don't know and will do the right thing if you help sit down and help them understand what we need to do. And you never know. Sometimes guys that love to bow hunt can, can get to a perch where they can have an impact. There's a tall, thin kid out of Wisconsin that came to Congress in 1998 that I met. Um, got to know him. He loved archery and bow hunting. Came to our Archery Trade Association board meeting, one of our first strategic planning meetings. And over the years, we stayed in touch. He helped fix some excise tax issues for us. And one day, I get a picture from him about, oh, I don't know, probably five, six, seven years ago of a tree stand. First picture I ever got from a member of Congress showing a tree stand. And he said, I'm going to tell everybody and announce it that this is the new Speaker of the House of the United States' uh, uh, seat. And this is the seat I want. And I thought, wow, have we arrived? We have, we have a chance to have an impact. And we did. And we need more like that. And that's why policy is so important. You never know when somebody that cares about what we do uh, can, can get to a place where they can really have an impact. Not that, not that all the other members of Congress don't. Mm-hmm. Perfectly said. Perfectly said. That's a call to action, folks, if I ever heard one. Uh, Jay, thank you. I can't thank you enough. We've been wanting to do this a long time, have you on the show, and it's, it's great to have you. Uh, appreciate you coming up a couple weeks ago for lunch. That was great to see you. And uh, hopefully we can do more of that soon here. But uh, as for now, thanks again for being on the show. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Great. And uh, Mike, I uh, wish we had time to get to know you. I can see with you two. Uh, I don't know if you live close enough together. We'll have to uh, get together sometime for a meal and hear some more stories because that's going to make me smile. And remember my buddy who's uh, sitting there in southwest Iowa. And we had some reminiscing about uh, a few things that actually did happen and a lot of things that probably didn't quite happen the way it Anyway, thank thank you guys. Oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it. And the things that really didn't happen between Nick and myself, he's the one that tells those stories. (laughs) Guilty as charged. All right, Jay, thank you. You bet. Thanks, guys. Have a nice day. As expected, Mike, we got into a lot of different areas with Jay. Uh, His stories going back to what he was using when he shot his first deer really stood out to me. I just, I kept sort of laughing and trying to cover up my microphone so I didn't ruin the podcast Uh, all the way up through his call to action about leadership the need for leadership in this industry and policy and how we can't just sit on the sidelines that was that was really I think an incredible conversation and truly one of my favorites so far well and as he was speaking the one thing that I would encourage you the listener out there to to at least look up and just read this it it was kind of reminiscent at least to me it had the same undertones of Teddy Roosevelt's speech that was the I think it was called like citizen in a republic but the 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 tagline is the man in the arena so get on the internet and look up Teddy Roosevelt's the man in the arena speech it is it's a really poignant speech and the the message had a lot of parallels and um i appreciated him like sticking his neck out and actually going for that and having that opinion because sometimes you need to i call it shaking the tree or rattling the cage you need to kind of give people a wake-up call and i think uh, i think we heard a little bit of that so i appreciate jay's comment yeah, it was, it was outstanding. Just many different aspects. I, I can't wait to get back as we edit this and listen to it again and um, just pick up some of those details of the things that he talked about. So with that, folks, 
I want to remind you, if you're not already, please consider subscribing to our show here, The Coffee and Deer Show. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher, just to name a few. Or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast, and you can subscribe right there. Please also leave us a rating. We've asked you to do this in the past, so I'll continue to ask you and bother you to do that. Uh, that really helps us, helps people see our show, especially as we're a new show. And we did get a new rating in last week from uh, PIFCAL, P-I-F-F-CAL. And the rating or the review is, I'm hooked, great podcast, and already waiting for the next one. And I think he, this individual is going to have a good one to listen to. Wow. We'll see that. Breaking news. We need to break... Uh, put that on the list. Let's talk to the producers and get a breaking news soundbite. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As, as you're waving at me, like, Hey, I have something to say here. Um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. So there follow the lead there, give us some more reviews and we'll, and we'll, if they're good, we'll mention you. If they're not, we'll, we'll not bring it up. <laughs> but but anyway, we will read them and try and improve. We will read them and try and improve. Yes, we will. Thank you, Mike. For more information about the National Deer Association, please visit our website at deerassociation.com. And from there, you can become a member and sign up for our free newsletter and enjoy our endless content on all matters related to wild deer conservation, habitat hunting, and conservation policy. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We appreciate your support, folks. We thank you very much for listening. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.